Well, good morning, Highland Hills. It's great to see you all. I'm so happy to know that we also have people tuning in online with us to examine the Word of God together. And if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 14, and we'll be beginning in verse 1. So what we've been doing the past few weeks is looking at particular instances in the Scripture, in the Word of God, how in the past God used miracles to make His presence known. And God used miraculous acts to show His power and declare His purpose. So we looked in the Bible of how God worked in the life of Moses and how God used a burning bush to communicate to Moses and how God seeks to reveal himself to us. God does not hide himself. He wants his ways to be known. He wants his presence to be felt. And we looked at the atonement of Jesus Christ, how we believe that Jesus died but that Jesus rose again from the grave to make atonement for us, that that we deserve punishment for our sin, but that Jesus took that punishment for us, and we believe that he rose again. And now, everything that God is doing is rooted in Jesus Christ, that God wants to know us, to walk with us, to have fellowship with us, and everything he's doing surrounds this plan to exalt Jesus. And so we are going to continue looking at when God uses miracles. And how we're going to do that today is in the book of Acts, we are going to be looking at one of the earliest missionary journeys of the Christian church led by Paul. In other words, the early Christians believed that Jesus died and rose again. In fact, many of them saw him and experienced his resurrection. And, and they were so excited about everything that God was doing in Christ that they wanted to give up their kingdom. They realized life's not about us. Life is not about making myself great and getting everyone to look at me. Life is about pointing to Jesus. And our joy is found when we make much of Christ. And they couldn't but help to make much of Jesus. And they were so excited that God had been offering this invitation to be reconciled to himself that they had to send others out. The Holy Spirit told them, send people out to tell them about what God has done in Jesus. And in Acts 14, 1 through 23, we see missionaries who gave up their own kingdom, gave up making life about themselves, that they could go into the world and make much of Jesus. And we're going to read this account today in Acts. Acts 14, 1 through 23, we have this historical account of the early church and how they took the message of Jesus Christ to the Roman world. Acts 14, beginning in verse 1, it was Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, who left us this account. Now at Iconium... They entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs 
and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand up right on your feet. So he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles... Barnabas and Paul heard of it. They tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders from them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Let's pray as we turn to the Holy Scriptures this morning. Father God. We thank you for leaving us your histories of of your encounters with mankind. God, you who created the world. God, you who who gave us people that that could proclaim you. You you had a relationship with, with Noah, with Abraham. You who've been working through the ages, seeking to reach us ultimately through Jesus Christ. Let us see that you want to know us too. That you've called men and women of the past to to give up their kingdoms to live for your kingdom and that their joy was found in that. You gave them a purpose and God, we believe that purpose is ultimately found in this 
that Jesus Christ be lifted up, the Messiah be exalted in our lives. I pray we see how Paul and Barnabas got caught up in everything you are doing to exalt Jesus and how their lives became rooted in this aim to make much of you and let people know that you love them, that you want a relationship with them, that, that you will be glorified in their lives when Christ is the center. And I pray that's our aim too. In Jesus, it is in your name that we pray. Amen. There is very little in life that we do that does not contain this attribute within it. There are virtually no actions, words spoken, goals pursued that doesn't have an overarching purpose. Sometimes we are aware of that purpose. Sometimes we are not. It could be a noble purpose. It can be a purpose to live a life of love for others, for God. It can be a vain purpose to make life your ambition to exalt your reputation, your name, your kingdom. Many have tried to capture what a noble life would look like. Lecturer and poet Ralph Waldo Emerson said this, the purpose of life is not to be happy. It is to be useful, to be honorable, to be compassionate, to have it make some difference that you have lived and lived well. Historian and diplomat Washington Irving said this, great minds have purpose and others have wishes. Little minds are tamed and subdued by misfortunes, but great minds rise above them. Leonardo da Vinci, the artist, kind of a proto-scientist, a true Renaissance man said this, Make your work to be in keeping with your purpose. That if you're just working, but there's no purpose connected, you've, you've missed it. Lewis Carroll, the author of Alice in Wonderland, I believe, tried to capture grabbing a purpose in life with the dialogue between Alice and the cat. And it goes something like this. Cat, where are you going? Alice, which way should I go? Cat, that depends on where you're going. Alice, I don't know cat, then it doesn't matter which way you go. You see, if we don't have a purpose in life and aim, we are just walking directionless. And what I believe the Bible, what I believe the scriptures tell us is this, the God who made Adam and Eve, the God who moved in the life of Noah, the God who moved in the life of Abraham and, and all of these characters, Moses, historical figures in the past, God came to them and said, I, I want to know you. I want you to walk with me. That same God comes to us and says, I want to walk with you. I want to know you. And what the early church got was this. That happens when we make our life about building the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That everything God is doing to know us, to walk with us, is found in what God is doing with Jesus. And if you believe that, that becomes contagious in your life. You can't help but tell others about this one who came to save us from our sins, this Jesus. And that's what Paul and Barnabas are doing. They can't stay where they are. They have to go out and tell people, God has sent Jesus into this world, and Jesus died and rose again. And if you put your faith in him, your sins can be forgiven, and you can find God's ultimate purpose to exalt his son. But to do that, 
I believe we have to make this application, and it's the first application from our text. If you will commit yourself to loving Jesus and making him known, you must make this application. You will encounter this, and the first application is this. Don't let negative opinions influence your obedience. Don't let negative opinions influence your obedience. Look with me in Acts 14, verse 1 again. Now at Iconium, they entered together into a Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Now, remember what we see here. Jesus Christ is Jewish. Paul and Barnabas are Jewish, and they go to tell the people of Israel about the Christ. And sometimes they encounter opposition from Israelites. Sometimes they encounter opposition from Gentiles, those outside of Israel. But they've gone to tell people about Jesus, and they face opposition. Paul, prior to his conversion to Christianity, before Paul encountered Jesus Christ, was a very educated man and very well respected and acknowledged for his brilliance. I think even the biggest skeptic, if they truly peered into the works of Paul, of Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus and Philemon, if they would take these works and just look at them, then Paul's brilliance and wisdom and intelligence and introspection, they just come radiating out of these texts. And I believe even a skeptic could see that in his writings. It is clear that the Apostle Paul is brilliant. And I believe if Paul wanted to, if he desired it, he could have had a very safe, comfortable, easy life, full of prestige and acceptance, people constantly giving Paul compliments, acknowledging his genius, acknowledging his skill. If Paul wanted to, he could have built his kingdom around himself and lived a very comfortable life. But those honors and those praises would have been the mere accolades of men. And what Paul wants is not to make much of himself for the opinion of men. What Paul wants is to look at this God who loved him so much that he sent Jesus to die for him, to pay for his sin so that he could know him. Paul wants nothing more than to abandon a life focused on Paul and to give his life as an offering to exalt Jesus Christ. If he wanted the approval and support and endorsement of the world, it was there. He could have had it. He could have built his kingdom. But he throws away his kingdom for a better kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, to live for God and God's purposes. We can miss the magnitude of the sacrifice in this, for, for we read that he's just traveling around the Roman world. But traveling can be dangerous. Paul is giving up a lot to pull this off. And he's not traveling by train or car or airplane. It was risking the seas on primitive ships. It was risking the encounter with robbers and murderers and wicked people. It was risking the potential of persecution for the aim of glorifying Jesus. Despite the perils, he is committed to go. 
You know, even today in 2021, traveling can be dangerous. And I think sometimes we forget that. We just travel, and most of the time things work out good, and it's kind of out of our mind that, that it can be dangerous. I saw this story the other day. I want to show you this. You could probably see it. Look at there at that truck right in the corner, and you see a car has just collided. And this was a news story, and, and I was taken aback by it, by what happened. Let's look at the next picture here. See this guy right here? Look what's happened to his car. His car has literally just been squished together because of this accident. Let's look at the next picture. And he walked out totally okay. You may have driven to church today and didn't really think about the possibility of an accident. I seriously doubt that this guy gets in a car in the future and doesn't think first, I'm buckling up. I'm being safe. Even in 2021, there are traveling dangers. But you know what Paul was thinking about when he was traveling? He wasn't thinking about a car wreck, but he was thinking about a shipwreck. He was thinking about people may want to take him and the funds the church had given him to pull this off and, and steal it from him and kill him of wild animals, of murderers. These were the dangers that Paul faced, and he knew he faced them. And nonetheless, he goes. Why? Because Paul is willing to risk if it means he can make much of Jesus Christ. And now they face the danger of opposition. Verse 2 again. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Where is God calling you to in life? Is he calling you to risk a relationship by sharing Jesus with them? Is he calling you to lay down your kingdom and your goals and your plans for his glory? Are you tempted to let the opinions of this world stop you. Paul faces that temptation right now. He faces negative opinions. Are you holding back living for Jesus because of the opinions that this world may have of you if you make much of him? Would you rather have the praise and acceptance and accolade of the world? Or are you so thankful for what God has done for us in sending Jesus, that even if the world rejects you, you're content because you have this joy of knowing that since Jesus died and rose again, and since your sins are paid for, even if the world rejects you, you are accepted by God. And so no matter what the world says, you will proclaim him. No matter what the world thinks, you will testify if that is where you are, then that means you've considered this, this, this choice. Do I care more about the opinions of men? Or do I value the opinion of God? Will I live a worldly successful life? Or will I live a life of joy rooted in Christ? I believe if your commitment is to make much of the Lord... And there's another application for you in this text, and it is this. The next application we see of how we are to live our lives, to be like Paul, to be like Barnabas, is this. Proclaim the good news with boldness. Look with me in verse 3. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. 
One thing must be stated theologically. When we say theologically, here's what we mean. God has revealed what he is like. And, and God has revealed what his priorities are, what his nature is like, and he didn't have to. The Lord has forfeited his privacy. Now, it's evident in creation in a general way. We, we can look at, at our minds, at our eyes, at trees, at, at a sunset, and we can see that this creation screams that there is a designer. But in a special way, through his scripture, in a special way, through Jesus Christ, God has told us what he is like. And quite often, he is a God who will authenticate himself through miracles. And that's what this series has been looking at. Why is God using miracles? Because that's what we see, that he's using signs and wonders here for the Apostle Paul. Throughout this series, we saw that God spoke to Moses, the prophet Moses. God God spoke to him through a burning bush, and, and God is showing he is a God who wishes to communicate, who wishes to know. We've seen the miracle of the atonement, the miracle of miracles, that Jesus could take our place, could die and rise again. And now we see that the Apostle Paul could perform signs and wonders. Now, I want to proclaim something. I do believe this. God is still in the miracle-working business. I believe that. However, in the New Testament, when you see right here the apostles performing miracles, there is a distinction between what God is doing here and what God may do with miracles today. Let me show you what I mean by this. Let's look at two cross-references here in 1 Corinthians 9.1 and 2 Corinthians 12.12. I think these are two verses that we need to use as a lens to understand why God is using miracles here in the ministry of Paul. In 1 Corinthians 9.1, Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? So Paul is saying that he is a legitimate apostle. And one of the ways he says that is he saw Jesus back from the dead. And that's a requirement to be an apostle. On the road to Damascus, he saw the risen Christ. Therefore, he's qualified to be an apostle. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty acts. So now the apostle Paul says, an apostle is someone who's seen Jesus bodily resurrected. An apostle is someone that could perform signs and miracles. It was the apostles and their associates that wrote for us the New Testament. And God authenticated his presence in their lives by displaying miracles through them. So when the apostles lived, their miracles showed that that God, the creator, the one who made everything, the creator of the cosmos, could feed into his system novel and unique marvels, and he did so to authenticate that Paul really was proclaiming the true message of God. So is God still in the miracle-working business today? Yes. Is God still raising up apostles today? No. And anyone who takes the title of apostle is misunderstanding at best and lying at worst. The true apostles saw Jesus back from the dead and could perform miracles virtually anywhere they went. And God was moving in a special way at the beginning of the proclamation of Jesus to authenticate the good news. So the miracle working ministry we see in the apostles was unique to the apostles. We may not be called 
to perform the miracles of Paul, but I dare say we are called to imitate Paul nonetheless. How are we to imitate Paul and his love for Jesus? Look with me in verse 3. So they remain for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. You are to imitate the boldness with which the Apostle Paul proclaims the good news of Jesus. You can tell your family members about Christ. You can tell your friends and family about this Jesus that loves them so much. Your co-workers, your fellow students. You can imitate the boldness of Paul. And great things can happen if we are obedient to God. Great things can happen if we proclaim Jesus with boldness. And difficult things can come about if we proclaim Jesus with boldness. Difficult things can come into our lives if we are committed to proclaim this Christ. And the Bible pulls no punches about that. Look with me in verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. This goes back to the kingdom concept once again. The message of proclaiming Jesus is unpopular to many because it means that we're telling a world that says we're the gods of our lives. We get to do what we want because we're in charge. We're going to that world and we're saying, actually, you're not Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's an offensive message because we want to be gods of our lives. And we're not saying, hey, that's offensive to the world, but we get it. No, that's, if we're honest, that's offensive to us. It's offensive to us because we do want to be in charge. We do want to be the gods of our lives. But, but here's the truth. Our joy is not found when we try to exalt ourselves. That kills our joy. Our joy is found when we live out the purpose for which we were designed. And the purpose for which we were designed is to live for the true Lord, not ourselves, for Jesus. And to a world that declares we are the gods of our destiny, we are the gods of what we will be, we must anticipate that when we go into a world like that and say Jesus is Lord, we will face opposition. So ask yourself, are you bold in proclaiming to this world that Jesus is Lord? Because if you are, great things will happen. But if you're bold, are you prepared for difficult things? Are you ready for the difficulties because it's worth it? For a chance to make much of Christ. Who is the last person you shared Jesus with? Where is your purpose and priority in the boldness to which you are called? If we are to commit ourselves to this proclamation of Christ, I do believe that we also have to make this application as well. Not only must we be ready for difficulties in life, but there are dangers that are not as apparent, and it's found in this application. And the application is this. Escape the temptation to make life about us. We have to escape the temptation to make life about us if we're going to make much of Jesus' kingdom and forfeit a kingdom 
for ourselves, a futile kingdom of our exaltation, giving that up that we may commit our lives to everything God is doing in Jesus Christ. Look with me in verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul, what he had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Isn't this a change of direction? In one area, they get so mad at Paul, they're ready to kill him. And now here he is, and they're so enamored by his power, they're ready to worship him. And whether, whether they are ready to kill him or worship him, both those scenarios are dangerous for Paul. And I think we see in this text, Paul and Barnabas give up their kingdom, they lay down their kingdoms. They don't want the accolades of men. They go to tell others the greatness of Jesus. But the temptation to turn from that choice of laying down your kingdom for Jesus always pops back up in our lives. What if Paul had said this? When these misguided people came and they started worshiping him, what if Paul said, man, back at Iconium, everybody was ready to kill us. They wouldn't listen to us. We had to leave. And, and here, they think we're deities. They look up to us. They respect us. Here, we're in charge. Here, we are gods. And what if fleeing confrontation and now experiencing exaltation, what if Paul began to accept the praise of men. Wouldn't that be catastrophic? Thankfully, Paul and Barnabas aren't even close to that temptation. They don't want life to be all about them. They want life to be all about Jesus. What do we read in verse 14? But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and, and bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. See, the first thing Paul does is he says, get the focus off me. It's not about me. You know who it's about? It's about God. And, and he takes them away from the misconceptions of polytheism, the worship of Zeus, the worship of Hermes. And he says, it's Israel's God that is the true God. 
It's the God who made Adam and Eve. It's the God who made this world. It's the God who has been moving in the past. This is the true God. And he loves you. That's, that's why he sends rains. That's why he gives you food and he wants a relationship with you. And if you don't get your focus off of us, you're going to miss him. Paul is consistently saying, quit looking at me, look at the Lord. Get your gaze off me, look at God. They did not want to be the focal point. They wanted Jesus to be the focal point. And the question is, is that the heart of the church in America? Are we just a group of people that come and say, it's not about me, it's about Jesus? And the church in America if we were radically saturated with that mentality, what would life look like for the churches of this nation? Tragically, I think if we're honest, it's often the opposite. How many times have you encountered divisions between Christians? And the root of it, whether they got it or not, was ego. They did want it to be all about them. They did want it to be all about their choices. How often do people get their feelings hurt and so they simply abandon relationships for the most trivial of reasons? How often in America do we measure church success by social media following and how much money is coming in and how much recognition we have rather than measuring the true success of God's churches by how many hearts are willing to deflect fame from themselves to Jesus? How many people would rather die to their kingdom and live for the kingdom of Jesus? Rather than gauging authentic maturity by how many people we have or how much money we have, rather gauging it by how many people find joy in making much of Jesus rather than themselves. We all face this temptation to make life about our recognition, our kingdom, or Jesus' kingdom. And Paul's radical desire here to deflect fame from himself, he shows his desire is the fame of Jesus. Verse 16, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good to you, by sending you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. See, Paul is saying that Israel's God, the God who made the world, wants to have a relationship with the peoples of all the nations of the world. That this good news, that if we will admit we're sinners and believe in Jesus who died and rose again, if we'll call upon him to be saved, that's offered to all the nations to all the languages, to all the people. And Paul can't help but commit himself to this, that he's so taken aback by this love of God that loves all people and wants all people to come into his family that he commits his life to him, that he escapes this temptation to make it about him because he wants to experience the joy of making it all about Jesus. And if we are going to commit ourselves to that same path, I think we also must make this application. If that is the path we want our lives to be on, then we must make this application as well, endure in times of difficulty. We can face difficulties in this life, but by the power of Christ, we can endure them. Look with me in verse 19. 
The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, he returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul and Barnabas had been through some crazy circumstances on this journey. They were accepted. They were rejected. They had to flee persecution. They were almost worshipped as gods. And now here, it's back to persecution. A mob shows up to murder them. Have you ever thought, God, why do you let these difficult circumstances enter my life? Have you ever just honestly been frustrated with the Lord and cried out to him in circumstances of difficulty? If God wanted to, he could have sent 10,000 angels to defend Paul to stop this stoning. But nonetheless, Paul is stoned. Why? Well, I think in part, Paul gets that this path that Jesus walked was one of suffering, and it's the path we've been called to walk. What does he say in verse 22? Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Is that a truth we hear proclaimed in the churches of America often? Do we tell people, just come to Jesus and your life will be totally fine, everything will be great, everything will be prosperous. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says, come to Jesus, and there is a joy this world can't dictate, regardless of circumstance, rooted not in being spoiled with worldly treasures, but being found in this, that God loves you so much that he gave his own son for you. A gospel that doesn't pull any punches and says, sometimes in life, that road to the kingdom of God brings great tribulation. We will suffer in this world sometimes if we are committed to this Jesus. Jesus suffered, so will we. In part, that's the path that he walked. Now, it's not to say that life's just always terrible. What did Paul say to, to the people that he was witnessing to? God has given you food and he's given you delights. It's a mixture. Sometimes in life, things are going great. Sometimes in life, there are difficulties. But always, if you know the Lord through Christ, you can know that you stand on the rock of Jesus that can take you through any storm and give you delight if circumstance stands against it. And we do see a miracle here. And do we not? Verse 20, But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Paul is stoned. So horrifically, they think he's dead. And he gets up. And he continues on his journey. You know, I can remember um, growing up, and I loved playing football. And uh, my parents had me play baseball, and I was terrible at baseball. Uh, but my parents wanted me to play, so I did. And as if my uh, disdain for baseball, I love watching baseball, I just know that I'm terrible at it. 
Um, and to be honest, and just as a little guy, I'm going to be honest here, I was always afraid of getting hit by the ball. And, you know, I thought, you know what, that's just an irrational fear. Until one time I was in the outfield, and my buddy Brian was pitcher, and the ball was hit, and he took a line drive right into the head. And I remember thinking, like, I want to be done with this sport now. This is over with. And Brian was okay, but he had a massive pump knot, and it was just terrible. He got hit with a baseball. Think about that, how, how much that would hurt to get hit by a baseball. Now, I want you to think about what the Apostle Paul is going through right now. As rocks are being thrown at him. Some light, some heavy, some sharp, some dull, over and over again. Till the crowd sees this man who loved them so much he wanted to share Jesus with him, and they think, we've done it, he's dead. And so they'll leave. And then he gets up, and he continues on to proclaim Jesus. What commitment does Paul have when for far lesser things we may abandon our commitments to God? See, Paul doesn't say, why did this happen? I'm so upset. I'm done with this mission. Forget it. And if he did, I don't think we'd blame him. But still, that is not his response. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. He continues on telling people the love of Jesus, and he goes back to the churches he's already planted. He pours himself into Jesus' kingdom, not his own. Don't let the difficulties of life stop you from proclaiming and living for Jesus. Don't think, you know, I'll serve Jesus one day when I make more money. I'll be able to serve God when this current difficulty is taken care of. That's when I'll be able to serve God. When I overcome these family problems, then I'll be able to serve the Lord. You see, Paul could have said, when people quit persecuting me, I'll serve you, Jesus. But that's not what he said. He said, even if they persecute me. Jesus, you love me so much. You died for me. I'm so committed to you and so thankful for you. Even if they persecute me, Jesus, I will build your kingdom, not my own. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. But let us never forget that no matter how much difficulties we face, no matter how great the difficulties can be, Jesus is stronger and more powerful than any difficulty we will encounter. We stand on a rock that can take us through any storm. And if we believe that that is true, if we believe that God loves us so much that he did not want us to be separated because of our sin, so he sent Jesus into this world to forgive us of all of our sins. And that if we put our faith in him, we can live for Jesus' kingdom. Not trying to earn a place in his kingdom, but trusting that Jesus has made the full payment. He's a gift. If we will just accept him as a gift, we can have this life with Christ. If we believe that, let us stand strong to proclaim him, even if negative opinions want to stop us. Let us proclaim the good news with boldness and escape the temptation to make life about us and endure in times of difficulty by the power of Christ. For Jesus, who loves us so much, loves you so much, Jesus, who died for us, 
is worthy of such a commitment. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you because we know in this life there is this temptation to make life about us. And it ends shallow, and it ends void of what we're made to chase, joy. But God, we thank you that there is this path of joy that is before us. A joy found in knowing that our sins are forgiven, and our home is with you, and our Lord and Savior is Jesus. And I pray that that's what we are committed to in this life. I pray that we are committed to this Christ who came into this world, died and rose again, that we may be saved. And, and I pray like Paul and Barnabas that we can't but help to tell everyone about this love of Jesus. That we see the truth. That when we live as we were designed to make much of your kingdom, we experience joy. A joy this world can't dictate. A joy circumstance can't define but a joy found in knowing that through Jesus, we are your sons, we are your daughters. So may we make much of you, our Heavenly Father. We pray this in the name of our great high priest, Jesus. Amen. Let us stand. We will close singing the praises of the Lord. If you have any decision that you need to make today, you come as we sing.